Okay, Brian, here's a question for you. What would you do if you really wanted to see a whale and the Discovery Channel wasn't due to be invented in about another hundred years or so? Gotta admit, Nathan, that's a question I've really never thought about. You just wait for the train. Uh, the train? For two years between 1880 and 1882, a whale toured the Midwest on the back of a train. People came from far and wide to see the sideshow attraction like no other. And the best part, it was called the Prince of Wales. Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> There's more. Now, because, of course, the longer the whale was on tour, the worse it smelled. Jamie Jones is assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And she has traced the story of the whale and the two entrepreneurs that put it on the train. The two proprietors were George Newton, a lawyer and sometimes a real estate agent from a small town in Massachusetts called Monson. And he'd had an idea for a long time that it would make a great Barnum-esque sideshow exhibition to get a whale and tour it around the country. In fact, George Newton wrote P.T. Barnum initially in 1880 before he eventually teamed up with his with his partner to see if Barnum did want to get to him. And Barnum's secretary wrote back to him and said, quote, that Barnum's time was so taken up that he could not give any speculation such attention. Although I think we can read between the lines and see that Barnum thought this was a um, bad idea, a smelly idea. But eventually, George Newton partnered with a man named Fred Englehart, who was a sports promoter and former sports journalist in the Midwest, in St. Louis and Chicago. So Fred Englehart had a lot of connections. He knew how to set up these pop-up exhibitions. He had a lot of contacts in the Midwest. And he partnered with George Newton, and they formed the Pioneer Inland Whaling Association in 1880. Now, you have to walk me through the logistics of something like this. How do you take a living animal the size of a whale from the ocean, presumably on the East Coast, and get it on a train heading west toward Chicago? So what happened is George Newton went up and down the East Coast meeting with whaling captains. And by this point in 1880, the U.S. commercial whaling industry is really on the decline. Mm -hmm. Starting in the 1860s, petroleum Petroleum, so rock oil, kind of came into the market to replace whale oil as a source of machine lubrication and illumination. And so whaling, commercial whaling for whale oil was really on the decline. And I, I think that Newton might not have been able to find a whaling captain to bring him a whole whale if, in fact, the market for whale oil had been stronger. Oh, so in some ways, the fact that this whale made it to shore at all, I think, is a testament to the decline of this industry and the rise of uh, fossil fuel mineral mm -hmm. extraction and consumption. So Newton goes up and down the East Coast looking for a whaling captain who's willing to Harpoon a whale as close to shore as possible, <laughs> tow it back to him on shore. Sounds like from Newton's letters that he tried a lot of different whaling captains before he finally found one in Provincetown. Then in November of 1880, he got a telegram saying that his contact in Provincetown had captured him a whale. Newton uh, then hired someone to tow the whale from Provincetown Harbor to Boston Harbor, yeah. which is a good distance. And there at Boston, they contracted with the dry dock people to create a kind of cradle, something that might be used to lift a large ship out of mm -hmm. the water and bring in the dry dock for repairs. But they adapted all of this sort of dockside infrastructure for a whale. And they lifted it out of the water and put it on two 
specially reinforced rail cars that had been built for the purpose of exhibiting this whale. And from what I understand, although the proprietors are very cagey about the details for reasons you can probably imagine, it seems like the whale was at least partially cut open and gutted and filled with a combination of salt and ice. Mm. This sounds like an extraordinarily expensive proposition. It does seem like a very expensive proposition, but it also seems like for a while, at least, it was a money-making proposition. Right. During the, the whale's exhibition in Chicago, especially in January, it made a lot of money. There were, it seems, thousands and possibly even on some days, tens of thousands of visitors who are paying something like 25 cents a head to come into this exposition hall and view the body of the whale. So for a while at least, uh, I think that the whale also made a lot of money. So so the whale's debut is in Chicago, is that right? The, the whale was debuted at this huge exposition building in Chicago, which was uh, very near the lake and near a lot of the uh, railroad connections at that time. It's actually on a site that is now the site of the Chicago Institute of Art. So the sort of place where there were a lot of industrial trade shows in Chicago, and it was a place where big public exhibitions like this could be staged. The whale debuted to great acclaim. A lot of people came. Uh, visitors were invited to come and peek inside the mouth of the whale, which was called the place where Jonah went in. Um, and so this whale, you know, as it's this, this whale's body as it's being exhibited is also being embedded in all of these cultural stories about whales from the 19th century going all the way back. A visitor begins his observation generally at the head of the fish, looks into his capacious mouth, feels of the long, bony hair that supply the place of teeth, hunts for the eyes, the snout, and then the ears, walks along the side of the creature, catches hold of the huge fin, punches the monster in the side as if to ascertain if it is ribless and finally brings up at the tail of the huge fellow, where the broad flukes are spread. After Chicago, the whale goes to Milwaukee, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Toledo, and Detroit. Now, in April... Things are starting to go bad. You know, the whale is starting to smell. Mm. And Newton, from the very, very beginning, Newton's very anxious about how long this show is going to last. And in his letters home to his son, he nicknames the whale the bird. He writes constantly, if the bird gives out, we go out of business for a while. <laughs> uh, and so he's very worried about the bird giving out. And in April of 1881 in Cleveland, the bird was giving out. Mm. So Newton and Englehart tried their first big spectacular effort to try to preserve the body of the whale mm -hmm. and make it fit for exhibition. Um, and they hired a team of butchers to treat the whale's body with some kind of chemical substance. And they, um, they said in, in some reports that they fumigated the whale mm -hmm. or that they coated it or that they embalmed it. There's a lot of these, this language of decontamination or even kind of preparing the body as if for a funeral and because Newton and Englehart are masters of publicity, uh, you know, they're writing about their efforts to remediate the whale, to sort of save the whale from its own putrefaction. And they're making a kind of another press event out of the whale's decline because they are such geniuses of publicity and promotion. Now, in spite of these efforts, I have to imagine that as the whale starts to rot, 
people do start to slow down to a trickle. That's right. And uh, the news coverage of the whale show really changes uh, starting even as early as February, but intensifying around April and May. And the coverage is less about the spectacle of the whale and what a marvelous exhibition it is and more about how you know, how ungodly it smells and how you can smell the whale for miles before you see the whale. (laughs) And I can only imagine, too, I had the opportunity to see a beached whale in Connecticut a couple of years ago, Mm. in fact. And just the smell is just, um, it really is overpowering. Mm. So I can only imagine how, you know, it's been, what, from November to April? Right. You know, it's been six months (laughs) that the whale has been out of the water and decomposing It seems uh, as though the whale show itself was thrown out of Toledo because of the enormous smell and civic leaders were getting involved in treating the show as a public nuisance in some places. Toledo. Phew! What a smell. Fishy smell. To the heavens it seemed to swell. We asked our friend if he is acquainted here. He says no. So it would do no good to ask why this aroma. But passing along, a handbill is thrust into our hands, telling us of the whale dead and in bad odor, being in the city, and then we understood whence this all-pervading perfume. The Kalamazoo Telegraph, May 1881. They tried their sort of second last-ditch effort to preserve the whale or rebuild it or, or keep it a kind of going show in the summer of 1881. And again, a very highly publicized event. Englehart set up uh, in rural Michigan, uh, a site that he called Camp Baleen. Um, again, kind of publicizing and, um, and making myth even out of the uh, disaster of this show, where he hired a team of taxidermists from Detroit to come up and rebuild the whale from the inside out. And... Um, Englehart's account of Camp Baleen is is very colorful. Uh, Newton, by this point, has gone home to Massachusetts. Uh, who can blame the guy? And Englehart writes home to Newton to give him a report on how the project of rebuilding the whale is going. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Englehart says this, We are here. In saying that, I say almost all that can be said. Mosquitoes, <laughs> flies, bugs, and snakes predominate and form the largest part of the atmosphere. The work is terrible. You have no idea. But to the press who are trying to find this site and visit it and see exactly what kind of alchemy is going on at Camp Baleen, Inglehart is nothing but positive, talking about the genius of these Detroit taxidermists and the fact that the whale will be ready for its grand re-debut in just a few short weeks or months. And again, you know, um, Inglehart is making of this uh, a great spectacle of publicity, even as the whale itself is is uh, riding down to nothing. And the fact that I guess that whaling itself is literally a dying trade is also not lost on some of the observers. Right, absolutely. Whale oil production reached its peak, peak whale oil in the 1850s. In the 1840s and 50s were when the U.S. commercial whaling industry was booming. For example, during the decade of the 1840s, we know that at least 2,363 whaling voyages were launched from U.S. ports. By the 1880s, when the Prince of Wales is making its tour across the U.S., only 736 whaling voyages are leaving. And that's, I think, because the market for whale oil in the U.S. is declining very rapidly given the abundance um, and the relative Mm -hmm. uh, cheapness of producing petroleum that's coming from the oil fields in Pennsylvania. 
What's the ultimate fate of this giant carcass? It's hard to know. The archive starts to run cold Mm. in the spring of 1882 and 1883. I know that, uh, that things are not always what they seem is exemplified in the case of this whale. The skin and tail of this monarch of the vasty deep was all that it purported to be, but its frame, alas, was of iron and hickory, and its flesh of sawdust and other deceptive lightweights. Um, which I think in some ways allows us to reverse engineer what happened perhaps at Camp Baleen or in Cleveland uh, when Newton and Englehart were frantically trying to remake the body of the whale to keep it on the road as it decomposed. I was talking to Jamie Jones, assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's working on a book about energy, obsolescence, and the decline of the U.S. whaling industry. And on the subject of whales, check out our wonderful two-part show, Thar She Blows and Thar She Blows Again. <laughs> You'll find that alongside Jamie Jones' interview at BackstoryRadio.org. <laughs>